Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. It is so, so true. There's no one or nothing more powerful than the storyteller. And we have a lot of storytellers around us. There's Disney, there's Netflix, right? There's the school teacher, there's the social worker. And with foster kids, yeah, it's the social worker and it's the therapist and there are files that are an inch or two inches thick, three feet high. And within those files are discords and narratives and stories that these kids embody and embrace. And those stories are all coming from other people outside of themselves. And these kids embrace those stories. I'm ADD, I'm ADHD, I'm bipolar. Um, I've heard kids literally embrace the stories that are told to them. I come from this background or that background and they're pretty much verbatim in their own words, repeating what's in their chart and their case file. Imagine being able to reframe, reauthor or remix all of those stories into your own story, right? The most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. And the real storyteller is always you yourself. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson. And I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi, this is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast. And today, Jane Amelia speaks with Jeffrey Jamerson. Jeffrey has over 30 years of experience in the public sector serving at-risk youth and families in various capacities. Most recently, as the VP of Programs and Services at Aviva Family and Children's Services in Los Angeles, California. Over the past few years, Jeff has created a shift in how therapy is conducted with foster children. He has integrated narrative and expressive arts modalities with digital media art, which he calls expressive remix therapy, facilitating narrative mashups through the use of digital media art. Here's Jeffrey. Enjoy the episode. I'm here with Jeffrey Jamerson. Hi, Jeffrey. (laughs) Good morning. Yeah. Good morning. Hey, what do you have in the background there? Our, our listeners can't see it, but... It's a piece of digital art that I created. <laughs> That's me, my picture, but I do... Uh, I'm a digital artist, so I create a lot of digital art in my spare time. I, I don't know. Have you ever heard of NFTs? <laughs> yes, I have, and they're in the news now all the time. And I know you also do it to help treat kids, right? So we'll... We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, absolutely. So so can you tell me a little bit about who you are, how you were raised? Sure. Start with my name, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Jamerson. Sometimes, oh. I, leave, sometimes I leave the doctor off just mm-hmm. because um, 
I don't know. I, I think I feel pretty comfortable just going by Jeff or Jeffrey, but every now and then I'll, I'll throw it in there or I'll use it depending on uh, the setting, what I'm talking about. So I think it's relevant here to yeah, use. Yeah, well, you earned it for sure. That's right. Mm-hmm. I totally did. <laughs> Long journey there. Story for another day. Um, but I was born and raised in Pasadena, California, also called the Crown City, also called the Rose City or City mm-hmm. of Roses. Yeah. And uh, I grew up in a time, first year of Generation X, right? So born in 1965. And uh, I think our generation probably was the first generation that were called latchkey kids. You know, we were very independent as youth. And that also led to us being able to just entertain ourselves, right? Like, because came from, at least I did, came from a, a home with two parents that worked, middle-class home. And yeah, I, I just, uh, I had a really awesome childhood in growing up in Pasadena, a really cool neighborhood with a lot of kids, predominantly African-American, I mean, almost 100% African-American neighborhood in Northwest Pasadena. The term, it takes a village, I live that. (laughs) So like I had extended family all around me, 360 degrees from neighbors, relatives, and the like. So I, I had a very healthy, I'll use the word prosperous, but it's not so much in a financial sense, just in an emotional sense, I I lived a very prosperous childhood. (laughs) That sounds really nice. Sounds really nice. I kind of say that because, you know, it wasn't until I I was a little older, like when I was in my master's program, I was pretty and I have a master's degree in counseling psychology. And many of my peers, you know, as we started diving down our childhoods, in class, you know, it was like, for me, it was like, wow, I didn't grow up like that. You know, I didn't have as much, and I'll just put it in air quotes, uh, trauma and misfortune as some of the people around me, especially in the, the work that I do, which is child welfare and mental health. So it's not just the clients, you know, obviously you, you think that with clients, but even the workers that work in child welfare and mental health, many of them grew up in, uh, you know, adverse type of scenarios and situations. So I was, yeah, that was an eye opener for me. And I granted, you know, my class size is small compared to the whole sector, you know, so I'm not trying to extrapolate what I experienced in my little class with the whole sector of child welfare and mental health. But yeah, so just want to throw that out there. Yeah. So no, I think that's really interesting to hear. And so can you tell me, about your first job as a childcare worker, because that kind of came out by happenstance, right? It did. Yeah, I was in my mid-20s. This is in the early 90s. And I was like, for those of you who know, and maybe some that don't know, being a black male in in a house with a dad who don't play, it's like, look, you either go have a job, you go be in school, or you getting out of my house, right? It's not, (laughs) you know, I came to understand in in other cultures, it's not necessarily like that, but with with Black parents, they don't play, right? So I was kind of fooling around with school at that point, wasn't real serious, and my dad was on the verge of kicking me out. I really needed a job. I have an aunt who was a social worker, and she was connected to a six-bed group home in Altadena, 
And yeah, she called me up, said, I heard you're looking for a job, brother. I go, I am. And she goes, I have this company that I'm working with. They're trying to hire a childcare worker. This is what the job looks like. You basically would provide basic caretaking to adolescent kids, boys, 13 to 18. They're in the foster care system. They live in a home. I go, where do I do the application? And yeah, so I did fill out the application, got the job. And that's how my I got my foot in the door in this Sector. Right and right, so there were six boys in in the home, right? And you said it was kind of double edged sword for you. You learned a lot, but you were also really naive. You were a young man, and you were you were looking after six other young men, uh, you know, young boys, but but you know, on their way to being men. Yeah, it was a double edged sword. At the time, I didn't know that because I've been in this field now, this is my 30th year. So I'm going back to year one, right? So yeah. in, in the first few years of working, I, yeah, I didn't realize everything that it takes to be a childcare worker, to be a so-called quote-unquote caregiver, a surrogate caregiver to kids and youth that really need it. And like you said, I was young, I was wet under the ears. I, you know, I didn't take my training is serious in those early days. And as I, as I grew and evolved in this, in the space, I did look back and go, wow, like, yeah, I was super, super naive and probably a bit entitled and young. So. Right. But they related to you really well, right? Because you were a young black man. They totally related to me. I think yeah. I was able to get a lot out of, even though everything I just mentioned, yeah, I was super relatable. For the most part, I dress like them. <laughs> if you can imagine dress, you know, the styles look like in the 90s. I was still, you know, young in my consciousness, right? And in my style. So, uh, yeah, we would go out and it just looked like a crew of dudes hanging out. But I was the <laughs> elder. I was the one. I was the caregiver. I wasn't totally immature, by the way, in, in my mid-20s. I did have a level of maturity. I, I think that had to do with my my upbringing, I wasn't a totally irresponsible person. So I, I did have elements even way back then that allowed me to, for them to look at me, look up to me and take me serious on the things that needed to be done, you know, for the house as well as for them and their, I'll call it treatment plans or their child welfare plans. Right. And was it hard work? The work became harder, to be honest, with the the adolescence in, in that job, it, it wasn't that hard. It became a lot harder. I did that job for two years. Then I graduated and I use that term, you know, meaning I moved on to like a bigger agency in the Pasadena area, much bigger. <laughs> so Right, uh, like a multi-million dollar a multi-million right? dollar child welfare mental health agency in wow, um, I didn't even the, didn't know those things existed. I'm just learning about this now. Yeah. I, it's like a huge operation because there's so many kids. So many kids. Help. So mm-hmm. I went from a six bed group home to a 80 bed residential treatment center. So that's a big, big difference. So the 80 beds were broken up between eight cottages and 10 kids in each cottage. The uh, age of the youth or the children were a little younger. They started at about eight years old and went up to 13. 
Right. And how did they end up there? Is is it because there weren't foster homes for them or because they had behavioral issues that needed to be dealt with or, or what? Yeah. So most kids and youth, I use children and youth. That's probably a better descriptor. So children would be like zero to 12 or 13. And then the youth would be 13 to 18. So youth basically are adolescents, right? That's at least how I draw the lines. So whether it was at this facility that's 80 beds or even the smaller group home that was a six bed, the stories are basically the similar or the same for the children and youth and how they ended up in child welfare. It's usually neglect or abuse. And so for the vast majority of children, they come from a background where they were neglected or abused and child welfare does an assessment and they will deem that it's not safe for those children and youth to remain with their family of origin and they get placed in foster care. And there are different levels of foster care. So, you know, a lot of times when people hear the word foster care, and I'm talking California, LA County, where I'm from, you think, yeah, a foster home with parents, right? But there's a whole different level of foster care, which we call congregate care, which are group homes and residential treatment facilities. Those names are a little different now, (laughs) Um, but back then that's what they were called. Right. But how do those kids, like the kids that you had out of those 80, what was that like? What was what was happening with them? Great question. And that brings me full circle on you. You had asked me, you know, was it hard? And so when I was at the six bed group home, not so hard. When I got to <laughs> working with the 10 year olds, that was pretty close to the hardest job I've ever done because those kids I mean, they just had extreme behavioral challenges and they tended to act out, which looked like, you know, tantrums and fighting and cursing and yelling. Just a lot of, uh, it's just chaotic. Um, I, I I came to learn within my first year, a lot of the, the that those behaviors and the chaos could be mitigated. It depended on the staff. It depended on your knowledge, how you related how you set up your program, meaning your, you know, your daily routine. I came to to learn that uh, in my first year, though I didn't know that. Even even with my two years of experience working with the adolescents, it was like a total different job when I got to working with the um, the smaller kids. So tell me about wraparound and also TBS, because that's the first time you had to work with that methodology, right? Absolutely. TBS stands for Therapeutic Behavioral Services, and wraparound um, is a word that signifies uh, wrapping services around a family. What makes those two services unique is they're predicated on a slightly different way of viewing children and the families. And so in traditional mental health service delivery, the service provider is the expert, right? So I'm a therapist or I'm a social worker and I went to school and I know how to assess you and I'm the expert, right? But with TBS and wraparound, they kind of turned that upside down. There's something called family voice and choice or client voice and choice. So the family and the clients are brought in to have a voice and choice on what treatment looks like. So that means they help design their own treatment plan, right? When I first started in this sector, like that never happened, but wraparound and and TBS kind of changed that. 
They also are predicated on looking at family and client strengths. Okay, that didn't used to happen either. Like the old days, everything is predicated on a diagnosis, which is looking at what's wrong or a presenting problem or a negative, you know, something negative that that's occurring with the client and the family. Whereas wraparound is like, okay, so what are the strengths and what's positive? And, you know, let's look at that also. Right. So. Yeah, once I got trained in with that lens and that perspective, it really shifted uh, the way that I started to relate to clients. Right, because the idea then is to build on the strengths, right? Absolutely. So once you can acquire or figure out what a strength is, now that can be used as a stepping stone, right? Or it could be used as an intervention strategy, right? So if I'm hanging out with a kid and I learn that they have either a strength or a desire to make beats. And that's just a nice way of saying do music production, right? Like a Dr. Dre or a DJ Premier or, you know, there's a lot of hip hop producers out there and I'm kind of dating myself because those guys are old school now with Kanye West. I guess he's a little bit more yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, if there's a, a youth or a child and, and they have that strength, then cool, let's explore a way for them to make beats, whether it's taking them to a studio, which I used to do back in the day, but, but nowadays with the advancement of technology, you, you can have a studio on your iPhone or your iPad on your computer. Yeah. So then you just you just figure out what the apps are and you sit down with your your client and you could do it that way. And then that just becomes a stepping stone. It becomes a, a level of empowerment, right? Because they're doing something that is has been identified as a strength. And yeah, so Yeah, it's super positive. That's what's that, that's what's so great about it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about MAP. So what does that stand for? And how, how does that, I'm, I'm learning so much from you. So, and I think my <laughs> listeners are too. So what does that mean? And how does that function? MAT is an acronym. It stands for multidisciplinary assessment team. And the MAT assessment team is, is kind of new. I mean, it, it's probably been around for about 15 years now. So basically, as I said before, like most kids that end up in foster care are there for abuse and neglect. And the way that that happened is someone probably saw something or heard something from a, a child or youth. It could be a teacher. It could be a neighbor. They make a call to the hotline, DCFS, Department of Children and Family Services, Child Abuse Hotline. When that happens, a worker from Department of Children and Family Services will go out to a home. They'll interview the parents. They'll interview the kids. And then they'll make a judgment call, do their assessment on whether abuse or neglect has occurred. If they think it has, the children are removed from the care of their family and placed into the foster care system. So with Matt, to come full circle, there was a slightly different way of doing that. And so what they did was instead of allowing ONI, a Department of Children and Family Service social worker, to make that decision, they include also agencies that have therapists to be included with that decision-making process. So basically it's more than one person just making the, the decision or one entity. Now there are uh, agencies 
like where I work, we have a mat department and our therapists will go out and also do what's called a summary of findings. So they actually interview the family. So it's not just the county social worker. There's also a therapist and they'll also write up a full report. And then so it's just like a, a second level to make sure that the right decision is being made. Sometimes the mat assessor will also say maybe the child or youth shouldn't be removed from the family. What if we put in supportive services and stabilize the family with the child in the family, then that saves a kid from being removed. And supportive services could be wraparound or TBS, right? So the the MAT team and assessors have, I think, helped in some ways mitigate the number of kids being removed from families. And by the way, I have ideas on how that could be mitigated even more. I would love to talk about that at some point. (laughs) I bet you do. And I do want to talk about that. And let me ask you then, you went on to get quite a bit of schooling. So what prompted you? You you got really interested in in what you're doing and the work and thought you could make a difference or? Yeah, you know, it, 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 it was, I don't want to call it peer pressure, but I'm going to call it peer peer influence is peer influence, peer positive influence, right? So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I did uh, at my old agency, I I did uh, residential with those 10 year olds for six years. (laughs) And then uh, after six years, I moved into the TBS department where I was a TBS specialist. And I did that for a couple of years. And um, my peers around me, everyone just jumped back in school. Like we were all either AA degrees or bachelor degrees. And at least four or five of my peers that have bachelors, they jumped back into school and started working on their master's degree. And it was just very positive and influential. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to, I had an AA associate of arts degree. So I decided to finish my bachelor's, which I did in human services. I, right after that, finished my master's and then right after that went into a PhD program. So I just, you know, it took a while, but um, I was, I felt like I was on a scholastic academic role and it was all congruent with the work that I was doing. And yeah, but it started out as just a positive influence from a team that I was on and everyone just went back to school. So. And now you're the VP of Aviva Children and Family Services, which is a nonprofit. So t- tell me about that. What does Aviva do? Aviva Family and Children's Services, we've been around for over 100 years. We're located in Hollywood. We have four core service areas. The first is, we call it crisis intervention. Within that department sits wraparound and full service partnership. They're the, they're the programs that I spoke about before, that they're team-based, they're uh, strength-based, family voice and choice. They go out, they try to keep families together by stabilizing them so kids don't end up in foster care. Then we have another area uh, called foster family and adoptions. And through our foster family and adoptions, we service probably almost 100 families at any given time uh, throughout the year. And we facilitate at least half a dozen to a dozen adoptions at any given time in the year. And then we have school-based mental health, and that's where we have therapists and case managers that go into Los Angeles Unified Schools 
and provide counseling in school setting. And our newest program is Crisis Housing. Uh, it's a shelter for women and children who are unhoused or experiencing homelessness. Right. And you, um, you had to close a residential program in 2017. You said it was the toughest decision of your career. What, what happened and why? Yeah, in 2015, so? 2016, the state of California began some shifts and changes in congregate care and the way that that looked. By the way, it wasn't all bad. <laughs> One of the biggest changes that they uh, that the initiative or legislature brought about was a reducing of the number of children and youth in congregate care. And remember, congregate care is residential treatment facilities from residential treatment facilities to foster homes. And so what we saw was the ramifications of that. And in our residential, which was in 36-bed all-girls residential facility, we started seeing a lower census. So um, we were budgeted, like I said, to have 36 girls in our care. And that dropped down to between 15 and 20. That might not seem like a big thing, but it makes a big, big deal when you have over 50 staff and you're just trying to keep operations going. So a reduced census, not to mention that the type of youth that we were getting in our care were had extreme behavioral challenges. So yeah, we had a, a tough time. A lot of, a a lot lot of, of drama, drama, right? Yeah, a lot of drama. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we pretty much saw the writing on the wall. And what that writing looked like was over time, there was going to be less and less uh, referrals for those youth, children and youth. And when you did get a referral, it was going to be a high I, uh, acuity child, someone with extreme challenges, which requires uh, an extreme amount of training and orientation to be able to handle and deal with those youth. We were going down the road because the name of the initiative was called CCR, Continuum of Care Reform. And Continuum of Care Reform required all residentials as well as foster family agencies to I'll use the word reimagine, <laughs> right? The way that services are constructed and delivered. So we had to write our new program statements from the child welfare side to the mental health side. And we were we were doing that, but it just so happens that we reached a point where we realized if we continue to get less and less referrals, it makes no difference how we redesign our program and retrain our staff, there's going to come a certain point where we're not going to have enough kids to service. And so we made a really tough decision to back out of that contract, which was a big deal in 2017, because uh, not a lot of agencies, which I would call bigger agencies that had residential treatments that we were like the first basically in LA County. Hmm. And so everyone would look at us and they said, what are you doing? And we just explained our reasoning. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and it was, we were the first domino. There have been dozens in LA County and hundreds, if not throughout the state of California, that eventually did the same thing that we did. The positive news is we were able to pivot, reimagine, I'll use that word again, rebrand our facility and turn it into something that is magical and special. So in very similar mission, 
So now we service Tay, transitional age, youth, and adult women and their kids that are experiencing homelessness. And so now they live in our home, 36 beds. So we could accommodate up to 36 moms and uh, up to 50 kids, which we do right now. I think we're at 35 moms and 49 kids. Wow. And yeah. Wow. And so it's, it's like night and day. The programs are like night and day. When we had the residential, the police were there every day. They like you to use your word drama. And in our homeless shelter, it's like, yeah, the women want to be there. They're being serviced with life skills and job readiness and preparedness, training, uh, some some mental health, and trying to be matched with permanent housing. So they're with us up to three months. And in that three months, they get those supportive services, case management, case navigation. And then hopefully our program becomes a stepping stone where they are able to move out into a more permanent situation with housing. Right. So you you mentioned before about mitigation that you have ideas about that. I'm happy to hear that because I and I'm rooting for you, too. So (laughs) let me hear what you think about that. Sure. So, you know, I, I will say this, that when you look at child welfare and congregate care, children and youth in foster care, the vast majority of those kids are kids of color and the vast majority of those kids of color are black and Native American, right? Especially in California, Black kids represent probably almost twice what the population is. So now I'll give you a national statistic. So if if Black people are like 13, 14% of the population, we're 22, 23% kids represented in foster care. With Native Americans, 1% of the population, they're 2% represented in foster care. Right, so, so basically double, right? It's basically yeah. double. There's a disproportionality of, of Black and Native American children and youth in the foster care system. So with that said, uh, yeah, in my heart, it's, it's like, wow, these numbers are very skewed. Like what can be done? And I mentioned Matt before. And so Matt has probably helped. And we have a Matt program, you know, multidisciplinary assessment team. I recently learned about a approach, something called a blind removal. Have you ever heard of that? Jane? No, no, I have not. Um, what, what is that? So a blind removal is an approach that can be used to assess children and youth on how they're removed from their family of origin and if they should be placed into foster care. And there was a case study done in Nassau, New York. And there was a lady by the name of Dr. Jessica Price. You can uh, look her up. She even has a TED Talk, uh, which is pretty spectacular. Uh, Basically, she went to, she's a social worker and a PhD. She goes to Nassau, New York, because she hears that their child welfare system is doing something called blind removals. And she does like a case study and and, uh, some research on their system. And she found that they were able to drop the number of Black kids being removed from families from 55% to 29%. So that's almost like a 14% decrease. And it's, it's a pretty simple approach. Basically, what they do is a social worker will get a, obviously, they get the call for abuse and neglect. The social worker goes out to the family. They do a assessment. And instead of making the decision to remove the kid, They come back to the office 
and meet with a team of other social workers and professionals with one caveat. They present the case and the dynamics of the case without giving the neighborhood and without giving demographics. <laughs> okay. So you hear about the case, but you don't know if these people are black. You don't know if they're white. You don't know where they live. You just stick to the facts. And when they started doing that, it turns out that the decisions that were being made reduced the number of black kids going into foster care by 14%. I find that absolutely fascinating. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Absolutely. To me, what it shows is you can't run away from implicit bias. Like we all have biases, right? Like we all have them in... You know, even if you think you don't, even you, if you, you think have you don't. And <laughs> right. there is there is a tremendous bias when it comes to black and brown people, you know, and that has to do with I think it has to do with social programming. Right. The way we're raised. Mm-hmm. By, by the way, not just white people have that bias, like black people have it, too. Like yes. the bias, yep. black have bias about black. Right. Like we have yep. like these crazy biases that aren't rooted in reality, but they're just based on our social programming, how we were raised, what we were taught, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, I think with the blind removal, you know, you take the demographics out of the the picture, it doesn't give a chance for those uh, biases to kind of become the filter of decision-making, right? And so, yeah, I I would love to see more of that. I've brought it up in some meetings. <laughs> I'm in a lot of meetings in my position. So, yeah, I just wanted right, to... Right, so that's not happening in California at all? I don't think so. I mm. don't think so. You know, I've mentioned this on the program before, and, uh, you know, my parents wouldn't be happy with this, but if, you know, I'm white, and I grew up in a nice neighborhood in Jersey, but there were many incidences where we could easily have been removed from the home and probably should have been removed from the home. And we weren't, probably because we're white and we, I lived in a nice town and the cops were nice to us. Yeah. And that's like a perfect example of that, that bias, right? Absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, and that's kind of a, a bias, like on the flip side, right? Like where mm-hmm. a, a child welfare worker would see you or your family or a family like yours and make a different kind of call. By the way, I think, you know, if there were more assessors, social workers, therapists, even without using blind removal, if they were social workers, assessors, and therapists of color, of Black, assessing Black families, I think decisions would be made a bit differently also, right? (laughs) So not necessarily 100%, but I do think there would be more of a level, more of a, it just would be viewed a little bit different. So I do think that there is even if there aren't blind removals, we definitely need more Native American social workers, right? Black social workers, Black administrators in positions of authority, quote unquote, our power, which I would just say are at admin executive type positions like that. That makes a big difference too. The other thing that I've seen in child welfare that has made a difference, and we actually have this at Aviva, is the old term is called kin care, right? 
So kin care, and I, I say it's the old term because we don't really use that term as much anymore, but basically kin care or relative support care is a new approach also where kids who, okay, so the kid has come, it's been verified, like, yeah, abuse and neglect, like it's really not safe for them to be with their quote unquote bio family of origin, rather than taking them out of from mom and dad and placing them into a foster care system with resource or foster parents that they don't know, we start to do what's called family finding, right? And so is there extended family that already has relationships and connections with these children that could then they become the resource or foster parent? That has grown big time chain <laughs> like yeah and, and it, that's it, super valuable super Very valuable. valuable we we have what's yeah. called a relative support service program and a relative home assessment service program it's three or four times as big as our regular foster care program and it's relatively new we've only had it for five years and we're servicing probably four or five uh times as many uh resource parents in that program and it didn't used to be like that so that's good to see because kids are staying, quote unquote, within their within their families, which is, uh, I believe, better, a step better. Yeah, much healthier. Much healthier, much healthier yes. Yeah. yeah, much better for the kids. So I want to talk about Expressive Remix, but before I do, I want to ask you, you've now been basically 30 years in this space. How, how do you feel about the work that you're doing? At this point, I am so ready to retire. <laughs> <laughs> I say no. You can never retire. Yeah, you can never. <laughs> I say that and laugh because I'm I I am real serious. Like I am. Uh, I'm almost at the age of retirement. I mean, I I realistically have a good five years left to go, and I look forward to retiring. But with that said, there definitely have been uh, rewards doing this this kind of work. I mean, I yeah. It's it's a stressful job at times. Not all the time, but at times. And over the many years I've been doing it, the stress has come in different ways. Early in my career, the stress used to come directly from the clients, right? But now that I'm an administrator, kind of on the executive side, the stress doesn't come as much from the clients. It comes from my staff or just the problems that arise with contracts or <laughs> with, you know, just staff challenges and, and problems are rules changing and, and navigating that kind of stuff. So yeah, the challenges are there, but that's going to be, that's at any job. You know, I, I could be in the world of education or some other sector and, you know, it, it's the same there. But for the most part, I'm very pleased and happy with the career that I chose. And yeah, I've seen changes. They're baby steps, <laughs> but I've seen positive changes and I've been a part of some of that. Yeah, you've taken care of hundreds of kids, really. Yeah. Right? I mean... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't have any of your own bio kids. No kids. No, me and my wife. No kids, yeah. but, but you've cared for hundreds of other kids. I mean, don't you think that's kind of special? Absolutely. I still have some connections with former children and youth that I worked with, still connected with, with some of them. I, I'll tell you this. Maybe one of the most important things that can be, and you probably know this as a CASA, court-appointed special advocate, that being a mentor, being a permanent person 
in a child or youth's life is like irreplaceable. Obviously, it's gold. It's gold. It's gold. Obviously, yeah. the most mm. important permanent person would be like a mom or a dad. Like if you can get a kid and adopt them, that would be incredible. But if that doesn't happen, just being there for a, a former foster youth is gold, like you said, because like we all need someone. <laughs> You know, we all need someone. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 All right. So tell me about e- Expressive Remix. This is really cool. So great. So Expressive Remix, I call it Expressive Remix Therapy, is a approach or orientation that I created and developed over the last 12 years or so as uh, part of my PhD journey, uh, my dissertation uh, was written on expressive remix therapy, how to use digital media art, uh, as a therapeutic intervention with, uh, foster youth basically. And the whole idea is that, uh, I, in my former life, I was pretty hardcore hip hop guy in Los Angeles. Uh, I was a DJ. I learned how to DJ when I was 14 years old. I was, a break dancer, a danced on Soul Train. For those of you old enough this to remember great. Soul Train, <laughs> get out. Yeah, it's also in the movie, uh, the first movie, Breaking, uh, uh-huh. with credit with credits at the end, with dance credits at the end. So awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, hip hop, hip hop culture helped shape me, um, and this all predates when I before I got into uh, child welfare and started working at group homes. So when I did get into child welfare. I always took that hip hop spirit and hip hop art with me. And um, even to the point where I started doing services with with kids, I always fell back on using elements of hip hop culture. So when I got in my PhD program and had the opportunity to design an orientation, I came up with expressive remix therapy, which in a nutshell is a mashup of three distinct forms of expression. It's narrative therapy, digital media art, and expressive art therapy. And I kind of mashed those three together. It's all predicated on the metaphor of the word remixing. And I use the word remixing as a, very similar to a psychologist, we use the word reframe, right? (laughs) So you reframe Mm -hmm. something so you, you change the meaning of something, usually from a, a negative connotation to a positive connotation to try to elicit a more positive, uh, you know, feeling or, or response. And in narrative therapy, they took that word reframe and they used the word reauthor because narrative therapy is predicated on the whole idea of stories and storytelling And clients usually kind of being caught in stories or telling themselves stories that come from trauma, and it's usually negative stories. And so a narrative therapist would take their client, the first thing they're going to do is differentiate the client from their story. So they're going to say, you are not your story. So you have stories, but you are not your story. Let's take the story that you're telling yourself. Let's put it on the table and let's figure out a way to reauthor it. I love that. When I first learned about that in school, I was like, that is so powerful to me. So what I did was I I took that whole concept 
And instead of calling it a reauthoring of a story, I called it a remixing of a story. And clients can remix that story using digital technology. And when they remix that story, they're creating digital media art in the process. So it's kind of like narrative. This is cool. Yeah, kinda- this is so cool. <laughs> so I have examples of that. I, you know, I, I teach this to uh, up and coming therapists. I, I teach at California Institute of Integral Studies and the Expressive Arts Therapy from time to time. Right. And that's how you know my producer's wife, Dr. Mimi Savage, right? That's, you, you worked with her related to this. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. That's how I found you. That's <laughs> yeah, Mimi is right. Mimi is great. Doctor Mimi is great. Yeah, and so you you find this is really working for kids, right? I mean, I can I can see why it would, but you've observed that. When I was when I had time to do it directly, I observed it. I did a case study, and you know, I I did my little outcome measures and was able to collect data that show that the way that I use it now because I don't have clients personally or independently, but I just teach other professionals what to do and they just take it and run with it. So from what I hear from them, they're they're using it in some of their practices and they put their own spin on it, which I encourage. Remix the remix. You know, you don't have to stay true to what I'm showing you, but you could evolve this. Yeah, I've heard great stories. There was a, a gentleman that came to one of my workshops a few years ago. He was from UK. He uh used to teach a, a class for boys, adolescent boys on uh, not domestic violence, but just violent outbursts, aggression. And he had, he told me, he's like, I have the hardest time engaging the, the boys, especially the first three to five sessions. One to five sessions is just hard to get that therapeutic alliance. And he goes, so I'm here in your class. He goes, I don't know nothing about technology or art, but I'm here to see if there's something I could deem valuable. And yeah, he took the class. He came back about a year later, sent me an email. He's like, your your orientation has changed everything about my groups. He goes, I, I barely even talked to the kids the first session. He goes, I bought like eight iPads. They come in, the iPads are on the chair with art apps on them and they come in and they just know what to do and they pick them up and they do X, Y, Z. So he's using it a little bit different than me, but it's the total icebreaker. And yeah, so I've heard stories like that to to other stories, but I, I think it has, it has some merit. I think what makes it valuable is the natural language of children and youth. In my humble opinion is art and play <laughs> like you there's of no course. substitute for art and play whether it's more traditional art and play or kind of like what i'm doing playing with new media art and play but it's it's all the same when you can engage you you could get a, a, a lot out of it and i'll just want to say one more one more thing about storytelling especially with with foster youth um the the great late steve jobs once said the most powerful person in the world is the storyteller, quote unquote, right? And it is so, so true. There's no one or nothing more powerful than the storyteller. And we have a lot of storytellers around us. There's Disney, there's Netflix, right? There's the school teacher, there's the social worker. And with foster kids, yeah, it's the social worker and it's the therapist and there are files that are an inch or two inches thick. And you've probably seen this as a CASA. 
and within those files no three feet high three feet high okay. and within those yeah. files are are discords and narratives and stories that these kids embody and embrace and those stories are all coming from other people yeah. outside of themselves yeah. and these kids embrace those stories i'm add i'm adhd i'm bipolar um i've heard kids literally embrace the stories that are told to them i come from this background or that background and they're pretty much verbatim in their own words repeating what's in their chart in their case file imagine being able to reframe reauthor or remix all of those stories into your own story right the most powerful person in the world is the storyteller and the real storyteller is always you yourself that's right so you're teaching kids how to tell their own stories you have to how to tell their own stories better yes so that they can be better yes really right yes exactly you have to be able to tell your own story there's nothing yeah, greater and to be heard and be heard. Yeah. 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 That's, that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast. Amen. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. All right. I, I, and I so admire the work you're doing and I'm, I'm really glad that you responded to being open to this interview because I, I really hope that people all over the world hear this, that there is a path forward to helping kids who face adversity by giving them a voice, by allowing them to be the authors of their own story. So, so important. Yeah. All right, one other question. I ask this of all my guests, so if you can dig deep. What is the one thing about you that no one would ever know unless you told them? Um, I am an avid practitioner of meditation for almost 40 years, 38 years. So, um, wow. and probably more than anything else in my life, like it has, uh, I, I've had just great benefits from uh, meditating. It's, uh, I look forward to it. I do it almost daily. Um, and yeah, it's just a great, great thing. Right. So how did you get exposed to it? How did, how did you learn about it? I learned how to meditate actually from a former Bible study teacher of all people. And this this guy, you know, I consider him a, a mentor and someone early in my life who really helped me just grow as a person spiritually. My spiritual inclinations are a lot different now than they were obviously like 30 years ago. But yeah, but he used to meditate. I was interested and in, and he gave me a few words. And back then it was a cassette tape. <laughs> it's like, just take this cassette tape and play it. And there was a, a voiceover that just, you know, spoke to me and told me to relax certain parts of my body. And I, I did that for about four to six months. And then eventually I learned how to just do it using my the own voice in my head. And then eventually it was, you know, I didn't even have to spend a lot of time. I could just close my eyes and and go from alpha wave to um theta wave right i don't know if you're familiar with the beta alpha theta I am, delta waves and i think and, it's awesome yeah 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 so <laughs> yeah i'm trying to get there myself i'm i'm haven't had a huge amount of success but i'm hopeful that i if i continue paying attention to it that 
that I'll be able to explore more therapeutic waves than yeah. the one I'm in normally, which is kind of going on all the time, you know, yeah. like that. Yeah, the alpha, th- that's your beta wave. So your alpha theta wave, and you're fluctuating between those two waves, man, there's a lot of power there. Like it is. Right. It, it's like bliss. It is right? like bliss. It's also, in my humble opinion, the fertile ground for all creation. Like you can create from that space, from that space, you can actually manifest. And I don't want to become like, you know, the woo woo guy, um, woo woo. And, you know, down, down the whole (laughs) rabbit hole of law of attraction and all of that. That's a whole different kind of conversation, but, um, yeah, meditation is a great tool. So, um, I never really used that in my practice, you know, I, I don't know. I just kept a line there, a boundary there. But I, I have heard good things. I know there's some uh, TM, Transcendental Meditation, has been used with a lot of data with kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With Yeah, yes, there's has. a lot of data on that. Um, so, yeah. Hey, so thank you so much. Um, here it is on a Sunday morning. You make the time to be on the Bonus Babies podcast, and I, I appreciate it this and I very much appreciate the work that you've done all your life. I'm sure you've made a really big difference for many, many kids. Thank you so much, Jane. And I appreciate the work that you're doing, uh, giving voice and choice to all of us, people who are out there, particularly, you know, child welfare, foster kids, like they will always have a special place in my heart. And I salute you for being there to, for these stories, uh, for this narrative to be able to go out so people can become informed or more informed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey, for joining us to tell your story. It's incredibly valuable what you're doing and I'm sure greatly appreciated by everybody you work with. We are all storytellers, each with our own story and none more or less valuable than the other. If you'd like to check out Jeffrey's methodology, you can go to expressiveremix.com. Our next guest is Kimberly Bell. She's a former foster youth and author of The Epitome of Kimmy, Accept and Embrace It All, an eye-opening memoir depicting her true story of a life of abandonment, sexual and physical abuse from a very young age, and her journey of healing that followed. So join us next week. Thank you, and be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposta. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.